The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Are you building a renewable power plant? Looking for a battery storage system? Thinking about how to integrate renewables onto your grid? Hitachi ABB Power Grids is your choice. Meet your goals, unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, lower carbon emissions. All with Power Grid's innovative control and automation technology. For more, visit the link right there in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long E Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long E supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S., a global market leader, Long Yi has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has a breakthrough innovation at both the wafer and module level. With Long Yi products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. I totally get that that's part of the Elon ethos, sort of being able to promise the world and eventually deliver it, hopefully through uh, a series of unfortunate delays, but eventually redemption. Uh, but thus far, this has been that product that, that hasn't lived up to that hype. We're in the back half of 2021. Where's your Tesla solar roof? This is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm, Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So remember the Tesla solar roof? It was unveiled on the set of Desperate Housewives in 2016, while Tesla was in the process of marshalling support for its $2.6 billion acquisition of Solar City, which was then the largest rooftop solar installer in the country. The solar roof was supposed to be, if you'll forgive me the language, the Teslaization of rooftop solar. Take a thing that already existed, make it beautiful and sexy, and build an entirely new category from it. It's what Tesla has done, I would argue, successfully in both electric vehicles and residential energy storage. Well, it hasn't gone well. We're fully five years since that announcement now, and Tesla does not have a whole lot to show for it. Solar roofs do exist in the wild, and they are generating power, but in extremely small volume, certainly orders of magnitude less than Tesla had anticipated and promised at the time of that announcement. Meanwhile, in the interim, Tesla has gone through innumerable iterations on how to sell the thing, how to build the thing. They recently jacked up prices more than 50% for some customers, which had led to new lawsuits and canceled orders and a bunch of articles. In classic Tesla fashion, there's been very little in the way of admitting failure or significant missteps along the way, but the proof is clearly in the pudding. I will say this, I've seen a lot of schadenfreude in the solar tech community around Tesla's struggles on the solar roof, and I personally think that's misguided. Yes, it is true that it was known, even when Elon unveiled this vision on the set of Desperate Housewives, that the solar integrated roof tile would be a really hard problem, maybe even an impossible one to crack. But in my opinion, that should be lauded, not derided. It's what makes Tesla Tesla. We should absolutely critically examine Tesla's claims and process along the way. And as you'll soon hear, there is plenty to question in that. But some perspective is important. Also, here's the thing. The saga is not over. Dana Hall at Bloomberg reported just a couple weeks ago that the solar roof has become a recent fixation for Elon Musk, who remains personally involved in the program and has been firing executives in charge of it as he tries to solve 
all the challenges that they face. So while the difficulties are undeniable, the ultimate outcome still remains uncertain. So given that, Stephen Lacey and I thought this would be a good time to revisit a fantastic conversation that the two of us had in September 2019 with Austin Carr from Bloomberg. Uh, Austin did a deep dive, which we discussed right around that time, into the story behind Tesla and Solar City and the solar roof itself. So with no further ado, our conversation with Austin. Shale, did you get your solar roof yet? I, I didn't, but um, I'm thinking about it now. Oh, so you weren't first in line? I was not first in line. I figured I'd give it some time. I, and to be honest, I'm not thinking about it that hard <laughs> just yet. But I actually, I don't have solar on my roof yet. I have to replace my roof in the next couple of years. So I'm definitely getting solar on my roof in you know just a couple of years. So I will have some decisions to make at that point. Well, when that decision comes, who knows if there will actually be a Tesla solar roof there for you to uh, purchase or lease. So that leads us to the question of the episode, what happened to those solar roofs? And what happened to the Gigafactory 2 in Buffalo where those solar roofs were supposed to be pumped out by now? It's been about five years since Solar City, and then later Tesla made big promises about creating a solar manufacturing hub in Buffalo. And today, much of the factory sits idle, and only a small number of jobs promised have been delivered, and still no solar roof tiles. Customers are getting angry. Buffalo locals and New York politicians feel burned. And employees some employees at least, are kind of jaded. What do we make of the Gigafactory 2 debacle? Well, here with us is a reporter who's been covering this story better than anyone else, in my opinion. He broke details about how the solar roof was originally conceived. He wrote a blockbuster story last year revealing the major problems at Gigafactory 2. And more recently, he's been covering the disastrous Foxconn story in Wisconsin, which we'll talk about. It is Austin Carr, a reporter at Bloomberg. Austin, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. You've written some stories that are pretty revealing about what's going on at Tesla and at Solar City during that acquisition period and afterward. Has Elon ever personally reached out to you about your reporting? Uh, he has, but uh, actually a few years back, it was uh, in regard uh, to getting them involved in another story I did for Fast Company magazine. Um, he wanted to get involved after uh, Peter Rive, his cousin, had left Solar City uh, to contribute, just because the Rive uh, uh, brothers who started Solar City um, had sort of pitched me on this idea that now, since Solar City and Tesla merge, they were in it for the long haul. And then, of course, just weeks later, Linden leaves, and then a few months after that, uh, uh, Peter leaves. And so Elon hopped on the phone with me uh, to just, you know, talk through his pitch for why the Solar City Tesla merger made sense. That was a pretty interesting time. And it raised a lot of questions. And I'm sure for you, which is why you started reporting on it, what kind of bells were ringing in your head that made you pursue that story of the saga of the acquisition and the the, the happenings thereafter? Well, so if you rewind the clock a bit, People had always thought about three of Elon's big ambitions were, you know, electric cars with Tesla. It was about space with SpaceX. And then it was about solar with Solar City. But if you look at those three companies, uh, the most under scrutinized, I would argue, was Solar City. At the same time, you could also argue it had the most scale of any of those three. Uh, the under his cousins, Peter and Lyndon, uh, arrived. They had really grown the company, gone public, become the number one solar maker. And yet Elon was both cons uh, 
perceived as being involved and yet not very involved depending on who you talk to. So I was just really intrigued about how this company was actually operating, how it was competing in this really intense solar environment, how much Elon was involved. And then, of course, they had this mega deal with Buffalo in the state of New York for a $750 million solar panel factory uh, that had been sort of delayed and uh, changed in their plans. So I just wanted to dive deep into this and figure out, you know, separate fact from fiction and and really get a sense of what Elon's ambitions are in the solar space beyond what has been written about in blog posts. Buffalo. So let's talk about Buffalo. I think we should start with a little more scene setting here about Gigafactory 2 there in Buffalo. Shale, can you remind us how SolarCity and then Tesla got its hands on that factory and what it was supposed to be producing by now? Yeah, I guess so. The short version of the history is so Solar City, um, prior to the Tesla acquisition, right? It was run by Peter and Lyndon Rive, um, Elon Musk's cousins. Elon was the chairman of the board and was the largest investor, but um, other than that, was not a day to day executive at the company. And Solar City had been initially just a downstream residential solar company, meaning that they were installing residential solar on rooftops. And, you know, the big innovation that Solar City, along with three or four other companies like Sunrun and Sungevity, had brought forward was financing for residential solar. So, you know, the business as it existed for the first five, six years of operation was basically, we will install solar for you and finance it on your behalf. We will own it. Um, You will just pay for, you know, the electricity produced or you will pay a fixed monthly lease and you'll save money on day one. Uh, So they weren't vertically integrated in the sense that Tesla always has been, right? Tesla's big thing has always been like, we will not only make the cars, but we will sell them to you. And so that's why Tesla has had this whole, you know, these ongoing battles with dealerships state by state because they wanted to be selling it to you directly. And that was their downstream integration. In the case of SolarCity, they started downstream. And so the big move that SolarCity made, which was, you know, on the outside, looks like it was following the Tesla playbook. So you have to assume that Elon, who was the chairman of the board, um, had some role to play here, was SolarCity decided to buy Salevo. Salevo was kind of a small but upstart um, solar panel manufacturer that had a proprietary technology. Um, and so the idea was Solar City would acquire Salevo, integrate upstream, produce their own panels that would be differentiated because they were using Salevo's technology and be master of their own destiny from a panel perspective, which is valuable in the context of the you know, global solar panel market, which is super volatile and had been going through pretty big price swings and periods of oversupply and undersupply. And so the idea was um, Solar City would control its own destiny. So in order to, you know, ramp up manufacturing for Salevo sufficient to meet Solar City's really, really ambitious growth objectives for their residential solar business, they said, okay, we'll build this big manufacturing hub in Buffalo. We'll call it the, you know, Solar City Gigafactory off of the Tesla Gigafactory model. So that all happened in like 2014, which was when Solar City announced that they're going to buy Salevo. Two years before Tesla then acquired Solar City and basically assumed this responsibility that Solar City had made to the city of Buffalo around jobs and, you know, what they were going to do to justify the public expenditures. So Tesla assumes the responsibility of this gigafactory, Austin. What happens next? How does the mission change? How does the plan for products change? And how does the agreement with the state of New York change? 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you you go back in time to when Tesla takes over uh, that factory, um, one of the interesting things is Elon's name had been involved even before then. If you go back to that, what, what Shale was talking about, that acquisition of Salevo, Elon's name was signed on the initial blog post with Lyndon and Peter talking about their ambitions for having these high efficiency uh, panels that they were going to produce at the Gigafactory. They were going to be producing, I want to say, one uh, gigawatt of capacity on an annual basis. Uh, they were going to be churning out about 10,000 panels per day and create 1,460 direct manufacturing jobs. But then suddenly, as we get closer to the Tesla acquisition of SolarCity, that's not enough. They de- they decide to change the entire product. And we can talk a lot about that a little bit more. That gets us into the solar roof. They decided to change the entire model uh, of, of their sales org and their direct-to-consumer uh, leasing model. Um, and they also start to change the uh, collaboration with the state. They change it from, instead of 1,460 direct manufacturing jobs, suddenly that number comes down to 500 with about you know the rest made up in support jobs around the city of Buffalo and state of New York. Uh, so the deal immensely changed, even though Elon had been involved from the very beginning. But what had never changed was the the, the sort of grandeur of promises that the that Musk and SolarCity and Tesla that had made the state of New York. Uh, all that was sort of just overhyped from the beginning. People very much brought, uh, bought into these promises. It was something that local politicians, in addition to Governor Cuomo, uh, had really bought into, that this would be a, a transformational hub and make it sort of a Silicon Valley-like uh, area in, in Buffalo, uh, which, of course, so far hasn't paid off with the Buffalo Billions project that, that Cuomo had uh, directed. But uh, just bringing Musk there, there was something beyond the sort of uh, manufacturing, but just sort of the intangible quality of bringing that tech Silicon Valley ethos uh, to Buffalo was something that was very much driving this uh, this project forward. And the promise was that they were going to start producing these solar roof tiles en masse within a couple of years. By now, they would be at a fairly decent scale. I forgot what their promised volume was by this time in 2019. Um, and if you remember those numbers, let me know. But they were going to be producing significant volume, and they are not doing that today. Customers' orders are on hold. They claim to have been installing in eight states. They have not updated their numbers. Um, They're basically not doing much with the solar roof at all. So what was promised with solar roof production at Gigafactory, and what are we finding today with installations and actual production volume? The story of Tesla and Solar City is the story of Omer promises and under delivery. Um, this is just rewinding the clock. They did really push to have 10,000 panels of their high efficiency panels to be churned out per day or per week or whatever it was back in the day. Um, but the, actually, Salevo and Solar City had never been able to to get anywhere close to that. Uh, they had been doing some R&D on that and test manufacturing in a lab in Fremont. Uh, but my sources had told me that a lot of those panels ended up being scrap. Um, they actually weren't able to turn out more than a, a few dozen per day. Most of those were faulty and they were put together by hand. So this was never a mass uh, manufacturing hub. What, what the state of New York York and Buffalo had partnered with was essentially a startup that had no sort of uh, history of uh, manufacturing prowess. Uh, One source I remember had told me, look, this was a company that was great in a lab, but a lab, uh, producing a panel in a lab doesn't mean you can produce it at scale. So likewise, when we jump ahead to when the Tesla uh, acquisition comes around, suddenly they're actually talking about, hey, we're actually going to produce not just the high efficiency panel, but we're going to produce the solar roof product, uh, uh, essentially a solar 
shingle that is camouflaged to look like a regular roof, but can actually produce energy from the sun. This is a harder product to make. It's more costly. Uh, it had never been done at scale successfully. And so you're suddenly m moving from a product which they couldn't do to an even harder product uh, and, and expecting that uh, somehow through the magic of Musk, they were going to pull this off. Uh, and we can talk a little bit more about how that developed, but certainly uh, they had promised uh, you know, one gigawatt production target in 2016, then 2017, then 2018. That was kicked uh, to this year to 2019. And so far as I understand it, they have still not wrapped up to anywhere close to that scale um, and are likely just going to kick it down the road into 2020 or 2021. Shale, are you surprised by this in any way? Let's isolate the solar roof production problems. Um, it's easy in retrospect to be critical of the company, but I think most people in the industry who understood the difficulties, the technical difficulties of uh, scaling up a production of a solar roof tile, making it durable, making it last for a long time, making it efficient, they understood that that is a pretty monumental task. And the amount of volume that Musk was claiming was fairly absurd. Even so, Musk tends to overpromise and then eventually deliver. So many of us gave him the benefit of the doubt because of his track record, even though we understood just how absurdly difficult it would be. Well, today, here we are. The proof is in the pudding. Uh, it, it, it was so difficult that they couldn't get even really any meaningful volume out. Is this surprising in any way to you? Um, how does this compare with what you thought would happen when this was announced? I mean, I can't pretend to be surprised about the solar roof for all the reasons that you described. First of all, it is worth noting, I mean, Austin is right that nobody had been doing a sort of roof shingle solar product at large scale successfully, but Tesla did not invent the solar roof tile, right? So Dow had uh, famously a product called the powerhouse shingle for years. They were selling it. They were producing it, but there were dozens of producers. Yeah. Um, the challenge is it was expensive one and nobody was producing at mass scale. So Tesla was going to have to solve that problem. They made it harder for themselves in the original announcement about the solar roof tile because they sort of laid out four different versions of it that they were going to be producing depending on the type of roof that you have. They laid out really, really ambitious cost targets saying cheaper than installing a new roof and adding solar. So they made they made the challenge harder for themselves uh, just by the promises they made originally. But, but I think everybody who has spent a fair amount of time in the solar industry viewed that announcement, the solar roof announcement, and particularly the, um, the ambitions that they had for how quickly they could scale pretty skeptically. So I, I don't think there's much of a surprise that that's been a big challenge. I personally have been a lot more surprised by the extent to which Tesla has essentially eviscerated Solar City's core business, right? Because I think, again, back to the sort of the Gigafactory thing, at the time when Tesla made the Solar City acquisition, Solar City was still, as Austin mentioned before, the single largest residential solar company in the country. They were actually normally number one or number two in commercial solar. There was still growth to be had in both of those sectors. Um, you know, you can make plenty of arguments about the unsustainability from a financial perspective of the business, but you would think Tesla would have, you know, had accounted for that in the acquisition. So instead of, so when they made the acquisition, you know, I, I think before the solar roof became a big part of it, you could have said, yeah, okay, like solar city is going to continue to grow under Tesla. The Tesla brand is going to make it even stronger. And so maybe they will 
be able to uh, to to utilize enough of the capacity manufactured by the Salevo plant in Buffalo to justify something there. I don't know if they were going to get to a gigawatt, but they could have gotten to hundreds of megawatts at least. But what happened instead was sort of two things, it seems like, simultaneously. One was this shift to the solar roof idea, which is harder, right? Salevo at least had a product, like the solar roof didn't exist yet and is a harder manufacturing challenge. So the first was saying, we're not going to be making our traditional Salevo panels. We're going to be making this new thing. And the second was sort of simultaneously Tesla saying, okay, uh, I don't want to sell solar in any of the ways that Solar City sold solar. <laughs> I don't want to sell it through Home Depots, um, which was valuable channel partnerships. I don't want to sell it direct to consumer in homes through door to door. I'm going to kill all that stuff and sort of slowly but surely bring it back to just selling solar online, which basically nobody has done successfully at scale. So they both sort of undercut the volume that SolarCity could do on its own, and then they shifted the product. I think those two things together made it really hard for the Buffalo factory to do anything meaningful. When you went to the Buffalo factory last year, Austin, what did you find? So I've actually made several trips to that Buffalo factory. I've been putting in requests with years to Tesla, to SolarCity, and they'd always, especially years ago, promised me I'd get to go and then would renege on that promise. One time, uh, I remember going in, I, I want to say late 2016, when this thing was supposed to be, according to the early partnership with the state, fully functional. I arrived in the parking lot, was completely empty during a work week. Um, you know, there might have been a dozen cars or so. I, I wheeled into my car and there was a solar city truck at the entrance and a, a, a security guard there that just yelled at me and told me to go away. Uh, it felt very North Korea-esque, uh, to say the least. Um, I, I would say, you know, a year after that, um, I started begging them again to go inside. Um, I went back in 2018, uh, and I actually, uh, to be honest, I just sat, there's a Tim Hortons across the street. I just sat across the street and counted cars to see how many uh, employees were going inside. And it was clear that from 2016 to 2018, uh, they had grown. There, there had been some push into hiring more folks. Uh, you see a lot of Panasonic hats around the street, which is the company that uh, Tesla had partnered with. Uh, and you see a lot of Tesla shirts going inside, but still very closed off to the public, not very transparent at all. Uh, I talked to local politicians who had gone there, and they basically said the facility was very empty. Finally, in uh, late 2018, they decided to let media inside, and they gave uh, Bloomberg Businessweek the first uh, media tour. And it was kind of interesting. We got to finally see inside this thing that I'd been reporting on for years. And it was a very choreographed tour. Um, I was actually told by a source um, that this was something that they had done for years. Uh, often what they would do is actually bring whenever politicians were coming by or VIPs, they would literally map out uh, a route throughout the facility that made it look more active. In other words, su substantial parts look like what I described as a Walmart, an empty Walmart supercenter. They would map it out to go through the Panasonic side, which looked more active, which had more people, or they would go by some of the used machinery rather than the stuff that was crated up. When I actually went to tour the facility, uh, I, yeah, I would say uh, I, I sort of also described it as sort of a, it felt like a UN weapons inspection to a degree. Uh, you were going in, I, I sort of wanted to just walk around the facility myself, but it was very much directed toward only what I could see. And sources had told me after that they had actually erected a wall uh, to block off all the crated up equipment that was unused. And Tesla actually confirmed that to me. They didn't deny it. They said that that, that was actually confidential stuff that they were blocking off 
and they weren't trying to mask anything from the public, uh, which, you know, I'll leave it up to your listeners what they think of that. But to me, it just struck me as they were trying to hide that vast, vast spaces uh, of this uh, facility were still unused, even after years as it was supposed to be fully operational. The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Energy resilience is important everywhere. Yet imagine living near the Arctic Circle. Reliable power makes daily life possible, and Hitachi ABB Power Grid's battery energy storage system prevents power outages for communities outside Fairbanks. In fact, the innovative system holds the Guinness record for the world's most powerful battery. No matter where you are, energy storage can improve resilience and efficiency, offer greater user availability with smart grid technology, integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals, lower electricity bills by reducing load and peak shaving. It's all achievable with energy storage solutions. Learn more about stacking value with energy storage solutions through ABB Power Grids. Follow the link right there in the show notes. We are also brought to you by Longy. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market capitalization of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global market demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs and has multiple top awards from testing agencies. With sustainability front and center, Longy partners with the Climate Group and other sustainability leaders pledging to be 100% powered by renewables by 2028. With Longy products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. So, Shale, you seem to be pinning Tesla's troubles here on Elon's divestment from the solar space. Um, instead of any inherent troubles with maybe manufacturing in a place like Buffalo or empty promises from from the beginning. Am I characterizing your comments correctly? Um, Probably more yes than no. I mean, I I don't think it was going to be an easy road for solar. So say SolarCity had never been acquired by Tesla and say that uh, SolarCity had continued to operate as a going concern and hadn't run into like massive financial troubles. Do I think that in that world... Solar City could have ramped up the Salevo factory in Buffalo to hundreds of megawatts of capacity, if not a gigawatt, and you know continued to price competitively in the market downstream using those panels. I think it's possible. You know, ramping up manufacturing for new solar technology is hard, and it's always more expensive than you think it's going to be. And there are a million examples of that. Look back to the days of everybody financing a ton of thin film. But Slavo did have a product, and they were selling it in the market. Uh, people were buying it. So I, I do think that in that universe, um, Buffalo would have been a different story. So I, I guess I do place more of the blame on Tesla's strategy with Solar City than on the original conception of building a gigafactory in the first place. I've really been thinking about this. Maybe we can just walk through this together to figure out what the ups of this acquisition were. Um, I think it's important to point out up front that there there was this really incestuous relationship between Tesla and SolarCity. We've pointed out that Elon's cousins ran the business. Elon was its early investor and chairman. Uh, six of the seven uh, board members of SolarCity had strong ties to either Elon, Tesla, or SpaceX, including, uh, I believe, Kimball Musk was another person that was on the SolarCity board. Um, you also had what was called Solar Bonds, uh, which was sort of this interesting financial instrument, which, uh, you know, this sort of way to sell, raise capital uh, by using other 
uh, of Elon's startups to essentially invest in Solar City. Uh, I forget the exact amount, but Elon had bought solar bonds. Uh, I believe SpaceX had bought $90 million uh, several times of solar bonds. So these these companies were incredibly invested in Solar City succeeding. Uh, but if you look at the overall acquisition, or I'd look at, frankly, any acquisition, uh, uh, you know, if you consider Instagram or some of the bigger, you know, WhatsApp over the years, um, what, what do you look for? You say, well, were they acquiring it for leadership talent? And I would say no. Pete and Lyndon, the two co-founders, left soon after the acquisition. A lot of the Salevo guys left. Another of the big acquisitions on their uh, uh, Solar City was called Zep Solar. That was sort of their uh, installation R&D team. All those guys left. Was it for the operations installation org? No, not at all. Tesla entirely gutted that, and they continued to wind it down significantly. Was it for the sales arm? No. As, as Shale noted, they completely moved away from that model. And that that group, even under Solar City, had a 70% cancellation cancellation rate for door-to-door sales, according to my source, uh, sources. So it wasn't actually humming along very well. Uh, was it for Solar City's products or manufacturing? As we just noted, absolutely not. Uh, they moved away from Solar City's Project Whitney panel, as they called it, their high-efficiency traditional panel, to this new solar roof product. And then they overhauled completely the plans for their Buffalo uh, factory. Uh, and was it for the Solar City brand, which is another big thing that you look at for an acquisition? Uh, and and that again, not at all. They they wound down the Solar City brand completely, and now it's just called Tesla Solar. Um, so it's really tough. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, Shale, if you had any thoughts on this, but w- what's left after this acquisition uh, that we can account for? And and it seems obvious that you know the solar ba- bonds is is one thing that uh, they will be able to secure through that acquisition and sort of recover whatever SpaceX investments as well as Elon's. But then larger. Than than that, I think it's just Elon's reputation. You don't want one of his three major investments to go bankrupt. Uh, Lyndon and Peter vehemently disagreed that they were at ever any risk of uh, a major bankruptcy. But I think uh, the the consensus at that time, they were under serious financial strain uh, and that uh, a lot of people describe this acquisition as a Hail Mary pass. Um, So I I don't know, Shale, if you had any insights about what else is left from this acquisition, I'm sort of dumbfounded by it. I think for me, there's everything you're saying is true. Um, and the current state of Solar City within Tesla is a shell of what Solar City was pre-Tesla. So there's no question that sort of at post-acquisition, um, things have gotten taken apart piece by piece. Maybe they'll get rebuilt. I do want to spend a couple minutes on the positive side talking about this new Tesla solar rental program that they just introduced last week. Um, we can come back to that. So, you know, the overall picture is not a pretty one. Um, The thing that I don't really feel like I know, and maybe you picked up on some of this from your reporting, Austin, is how much of this was clear before the acquisition versus decisions that were made after the acquisition. Like at the time when Tesla was buying SolarCity, the public posture was this is going to be great. We're going to continue to scale. We're going to attach the Tesla brand to it. You know, forget the solar roof for a second. When they announced the acquisition before they announced the solar roof. you know, everybody knew that Solar City was going through a tough time. So you, there was sort of speculation even then that there was this is a bailout of a sort. But um, but there was also, I think, a, a fairly credible picture of where this could end up helping Solar City scale. It could help them scale internationally, which they hadn't done a ton of outside of Mexico. And Tesla was very global. Um, so I don't know whether it was always from day one the idea that we will just you know slowly. 
um, take apart this business effectively, or whether once SolarCity ended up inside Tesla, then you know things became clear and decisions got made, and it just sort of happened over time. Which I think is the, and I think that that's important um, given the question that you're asking, because you're asking basically like, was the acquisition uh, a mechanism to one secure the solar bonds? To be honest, I'm skeptical of that. I don't think it was like going to move the needle specifically for Elon Musk personally or for SpaceX. Um, but two, to sort of like save the Elon Musk reputation upon which all the equity values of his other companies are based. Um, I, I do think that depends on whether, whether this was always the intent or whether this came around afterwards. I mean, in, in, in my view, um, I mean, I think the solar roof is actually a really good example of how sort of fly by the seat of their pants they were, were operating for this acquisition. Um, just, you know, the solar roof initially, uh, as, as I'd reported, was called uh, Steel Pulse. Uh, it was this internal project that was actually a standing seam metal roof uh, that, that Peter Rive had sort of been driving internally along with some of the Zep Solar guys. Um, the issue is uh, Elon goes on a uh, shareholder call and publicly sort of uh, talking up that they have this major project coming uh, that that sort of will highlight the collaboration between Tesla and Solar City. At the same time, internally, uh, I, I want to say nearly a dozen sources around that time had told me that Elon had gone to see the first iteration of, of what would become the solar roof and absolutely hated it. Uh, according to my two of my sources uh, who were present for this, uh, he, he told Peter that he thought it was a piece of shit. Um, so internally, you have him describing this product as horrible. Uh, it has to have this overall and become more stunning. It has to be more aesthetically pleasing and uh, move away from a metal roof to a glass tiled version. Uh, but externally, he's sort of pumping up uh, the sort of shareholders around the potential of what this secret product could be. And I, I totally get that that's part of the Elon ethos, sort of being able to promise the world and eventually deliver it, hopefully through uh, a series of unfortunate delays, but eventually redemption. Uh, but thus far, this has been that product that, that hasn't lived up to that hype. Um, and I, I just think that's a really good example for that they were figuring out this acquisition, uh, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, the acquisition itself. I, I would say one source that was very close to Elon had told me that there was a very low understanding of what Solar City would bring to Tesla. They did think about it more as a product company. And, and as Shale, you had talked about earlier, um, it was actually more of like a sales and financial company than, than a solar company. I mean, it wasn't a manufacturer. It didn't have great design and product expertise beyond what Solar City, uh, the Zep Solar guys brought to the installation side of things. Uh, so I, I guess there, there was just, I think, a lot of very legitimate questions, which I don't think Elon has done a good job of answering in the years afterward. I mean, uh, Lord knows if they had produced a beautiful solar roof and, and scaled it up, um, you know, we, the, a lot of these questions would be answered. But instead, we get more of the same, which is sort of kicking down the, the can down the road for ramp up and, uh, and, and sort of not scaling up the Buffalo factory. And, and that could lead to all sorts of penalties if they don't live up to their job expectations. I want to talk about those penalties and the expectations, but Shale, you mentioned you wanted to talk a little bit positively about this solar leasing strategy. So I want to let you, you know, highlight that that glimmer of hope, that that thing you think is worth discussing. And then I want to talk about the bigger problems associated with this economic development package that Tesla committed to. So so tell us what that leasing uh, program is and why you think it was noteworthy. First of all, it's not leasing, um, which is important. It's it's renting, right? 
Um, oh, renting, right? Yeah, but that's that's important because it's it's the sort of fundamental distinction. So, okay, so Tesla, as we've talked about, has decided that they they basically only want to sell solar online for the most part, which was met with plenty of deserved skepticism because it's really hard to just sell. Imagine buying just online something that somebody's going to have to come like install onto your roof. Um, but nonetheless, a uh, a week ago or so, they just rolled out a new sort of mechanism to sell solar online, which is this rental program, which is unlike anything that I've seen before in the residential solar market. The basic version of it is um, you can go online and get a quote. I did this for my my house in Berkeley. You can get a quote uh, for residential solar that comes in a couple of standard sizes, so they don't do a lot of system design for you, um, but you just pay a monthly rental. And it is truly a rental in the sense that there is no long-term contract that you're signing. This is what the big distinction is between how you would finance solar otherwise. Because your your other alternatives to finance solar are buy it yourself directly, buy it yourself with a loan, but that loan is going to be you know 10 years, whatever it might be, 20 years, or sign a PPA or a lease, both of which are also going to be 20 years. So this is no long-term contract. It fits very much with the sort of modern day, how we get everything. You just pay a fixed monthly rate. Now, Tesla, I read through the terms and conditions. Tesla can change the monthly rate at will. Um, so you're running that risk. But if you want to back out at any time, you can. There's technically, as far as I can tell, no penalty for backing out. They'll just de-energize the system. So if you don't want it anymore, you just tell them, I'm out, and they de-energize it. If you do want them to remove it from your roof, you pay $1,500 for them to roll the truck and come remove it. So you know, some folks have looked at that and said, well, it's not that different from, say, a lease, um, which is a 20-year contract, but where you can, you know, if it just has a, a contract-breaking clause. I would argue, especially from a consumer sentiment perspective, this is really different because it feels like you are not signing a long-term obligation, and it, it I think, therefore, feels less risky to the customer. I don't know whether it's going to work, but... I think it's really intriguing. I think it's it's both in line with kind of the transition toward the rental economy that we are making in general. I think that'll be an attractive proposition to millennials in particular. And, um, you know, to the extent that you're going to sell solar online, this is sort of a, this is an interesting way to try to do it. So I'm intrigued to see whether this gains any real traction, but it is the first real meaningful new financial product to sell residential solar in years. We started with, you could just buy it. Then we said you can lease it or sign a power purchase agreement for it. And then there's been this new wave of loans um, that have sort of overtaken the third-party ownership model. This is back to third-party ownership, but it's just a different version of it that that I think is really interesting. So kudos to Tesla for continuing to innovate in the solar space, at least in this way. And, and I would totally agree with that in the sense of, uh, Look, I mean, you do the, the biggest cost, and, and Jail, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I believe is customer acquisition and marketing to get these things on people's roofs. So, to the extent that Elon is trying to move this model online and use his marketing brand uh, reach to sort of get people to adopt these things before 
they have to have someone go to their door and sort of sell them on this this idea. I, I think that's a healthy thing for the industry if they can pull it off. Similarly, with this, yeah, what you were talking about with these new financial models, I, I do think adding more products and, and more range to leases and loans and, and now this rental product is a healthy thing for the market. Um, and so you, you do have to uh, give Tesla credit for uh, pushing the boundaries here. And I would say the same thing with the solar roof. Uh, the guy who's leading that product right now is a former app, Apple guy, uh, Carl Peterson. And, and I've heard nothing but good things. I mean, he's a, a brilliant guy, uh, wonderful engineer and designer. And so hopefully, I mean, it, it would be amazing if they can pull this thing off and they are pushing the industry to perform better or try new things to, to the extent that they can pull it off. Uh, definitely kudos to them. It just uh, it's all TBD still. Yeah, in some ways, to me, all of this is, I mean, setting aside the like, you know, Buffalo, well, I guess this is what you want to talk about next, Stephen, Buffalo actually, you know, spent money. Um, so they should get something in return from that. But setting that aside, I think a lot of the challenges here have been uh, messaging ones where Tesla is sort of, I think, institutionally unwilling to admit failure on anything or admit that they're having a harder time than they expected. So there's this constant kicking of the can down the road and so on. Um, when, you know, I think a different version of the messaging around solar would have been like, you know, we discovered that we think that the economics of, uh, door to door sales for residential are, are not great, or it doesn't fit with our brand. Um, we are committed to solar, but it's going to take us a few years to figure out exactly how to sell it in the Tesla way. And so you can expect us to reduce our installation volumes for some time, but we will ramp them back up once we figure it out. And then as you release the new products, you do so. I mean, I don't know that that would have solved all these problems, but at least it wouldn't have been this constant situation of like every new announcement or every new thing that somebody discovers is like something that reduces the role of solar within Tesla. And so I'm, I'm um, excited to see kind of anything that trends back in the opposite direction. The fact that they did this monthly rental thing, you know, is an indication that there's still, there's still some dedication uh, to that market, even outside the solar roof, right? Because the, the the monthly rental product is not with the solar roof; it's with the traditional solar panels. You, you know, Chael, I think that was a, a really good point. I think you're totally right about that. Um, the, the sort of framing and uh, uh, you know unwillingness to just uh, admit to failure. Um, you know, it, it's really interesting. My my reporting on the valley over the years, one of the things I do often report on is failure. And it's so interesting that this is a culture that claims publicly to really embrace the idea of failing fast. At the same time, they never actually want to talk about what that entails. It's it's the, they only talk about failure at the most cliche Michael Jordan, uh, you know, I, I, you know, the reason why I sort of succeed is because I've failed so many times. But whenever you report on those failures, that's when the PR people get involved. That's when the lawyers get involved. That's when they want to uh, sort of clamp down on what the narrative is. And, and I think it, the reason for that is because a lot of Tesla's re- reputation is built on the idea that Elon can pull off the impossible. And again and again, he has proven critics wrong. Um, at the same time, I, I do think some sort of contrition, especially when it involves something like a large-scale subsidy package, uh, would be helpful. A little bit more transparency or admission to the public about, hey, we, we, we're not living up to expectations here, but we're going to do better. I think more of that might be helpful for 
uh, Elon or Tesla to sort of uh, tone down the negativity around this Buffalo project, because I, I think there's the distinction between him promising he's going to get to Mars, him promising he's going to create a $30,000 uh, sedan for Tesla, and, and him saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to create manufacturing jobs in Buffalo, because I've been to uh, those job fairs a couple years ago, and I remember going in the dead of winter when it's snowing outside, and people are waiting outside of schools and church fairs thinking Elon's going to come to save them. And and uh, that was something I remember talking to Elon about. And he just I remember him, you know, saying in one uh, public talk that he doesn't want to be anyone's savior. Uh, and he, I remember him telling me, and uh, I think I have the quote he, right. He said, you know, I don't think I've really upped the ante. The goals have been the same from the beginning. And I just think that's not totally forthcoming. He has upped the ante every time. That's Elon's MO to up the ante. Um, and when it involves sort of the, these local blue collar workers that are depending on that low wage job to, to get by, I think that's when the Elon myth has to actually live up with the the hope he's promising these people as well. That's exactly right. And that's why I think that this company can't really admit failure. It's obviously because of the perception of the company um, as this innovation leader that is building all these new and interesting products at scale that no one else can. But it's also tied to hundreds of millions of dollars in economic development packages. And it can't come out and just admit failure. It has to do it very carefully um, and very guarded. And so that, I think, is one of the biggest problems here. Um, now, let's talk about why this matters so much. And you touched on that, Austin. And I've been thinking a lot about this story. And this story is important for solar geeks because it, you know there's a lot of intrigue around the solar roof tiles. And okay, so big deal. They can't get it right. A, a, a few thousand customers get their money back and, or, you know, tens of thousands of customers get their money back and, uh, you know, they don't end up getting a solar roof. Big deal. Um, oh, it's just Elon, you know, ta talking game again, and he'll eventually do it. Big deal. Well, it's, it is a big deal because you have workers who are out of jobs or who have, you know, menial jobs who are being promised these great manufacturing jobs that are coming back to the United States, and it, it they're not being delivered. So what was that promise? What was this tied to? And what kind of jobs are actually being created at this gigafactory? And why... Um, and what is the reaction within New York now that we know that the Gigafactory 2 is not living up to economic expectations? Totally. I think that's a great question. And it, it does go back to these major promises, not just to create a solar panel factory, a uh, number of jobs, but also to transform this this hub. It's called Riverbend. It's about a 10 minutes drive south of Buffalo. Uh, it was on a contaminated site uh, near the old Bethlehem steel plant, which used to employ tens of thousands of people over, over the lifetime of its factory. Uh, this is a Rust Belt town that has really struggled to, to move forward. And suddenly you have this guy come along, uh, uh, both starting with uh, Lyndon and Peter Rive, Elon's cousins, but then Musk himself sort of talking about how this whole hub is going to transform into a, a job mecca. It's going to bring manufacturing back. And some of that is, is no doubt hype that, that Elon himself had provided. But then you have uh, the politicians that sort of bought into that that idea uh, from local state lawmakers to the governor of New York 
And I, I think you're totally right. I mean, I, I've been, uh, you know, sort of faced the backlash of Elon supporters. They can be very uh, tough and, and at times vitriolic on Twitter. Uh, but you're right. That, that is a 1% problem for most of their products, whether or not they get the nicest solar roof or a $70,000 Tesla uh, on time. But when it comes to that sort of factory worker who has sort of been waiting around for years, uh, being promised uh, this this. Uh, pretty good paying job uh, that's going to be working at Tesla, for God's sakes, uh, in in the city of Buffalo. I think that was a little bit deeper than just this idea that, hey, you know what, uh, this is another one of Elon's big promises that's going to change the world. And, and we just got to wait a little bit longer uh, for the people there. It, it, it definitely matters. Um, but I, I would say more to the point, um, you know, one of these, uh, the, the big deal about these economic subsidy packages that uh, states and local municipalities do with large tech companies like Tesla or Foxconn in Wisconsin is another example, is the economic ripple effect. The idea that it's not just going to create jobs at the factory, but it's also going to bring in suppliers. It's going to have this economic ripple effect where you have restaurants and bars and new apartments and housing complex open up and, and sort of in the same way as we see that sort of prosperity in Silicon Valley ripple out around from Palo Alto to Menlo Park to San Francisco, you want that same thing to happen in Buffalo in the suburbs around there. Uh, and and sort of bring in not just, let's say, uh, Tesla, but that leads to more investment in a company like Corning, which makes glass. Uh, and, and you have this sort of upstream effect uh, of hiring. Uh, so far as I know, um, you know, that hasn't happened in Buffalo. There have been no economic studies on that by the state uh, as when at last I checked. And more symbolically, uh, only until recently, Elon had, had never visited the factory. I think he went in March or April finally. But I know having talked to a ton of neighbors over the years, Years, uh, local workers that that had hoped for jobs that that was uh, very insulting that that he had just never visited this factory despite the the uh, the state paying uh, you know anywhere from seven hundred and fifty to nine hundred plus million dollars to subsidize this project. Well, this is something that frustrates me, and you know I, I'm a supporter and believer in capitalism and and the use of capitalism to create climate solutions. But you look at these corporate packages and, and these these big companies that are sort of holding local politicians over, you know, a bucket of water, basically squeezing whatever money they can out of them. Amazon, when it didn't like the way that, you know, local groups were concerned about the way the package was structured, they just packed up and went home. They said, forget it. We're not going to give you anything. Um, you covered this wild Foxconn story, this Chinese manufacturer that came in and promised to create a new Silicon Valley in Wisconsin and then didn't live up to almost any of the promises that it made. And there are very few consequences for these companies. And these local communities are just so desperate to get any jobs. Up front, they're willing to spend a lot of money, money that they're probably not ever going to make back. Uh, and and when those promises aren't fulfilled, they're still willing to do whatever they can to get whatever jobs they can. So Tesla fits into this bigger picture. And, and maybe the Tesla situation isn't as bad as some of these others, but it's still pretty bad. I, I wonder where you think it fits into this bigger problem of local communities being so desperate, working with these big companies who then kind of hold them hostage and then never really deliver these promises. It, it, it's really tough just because it, you're right, they are 
outmatched, and often these corporations play states off one another. So with Amazon HQ2 being a prime example of them having this national uh, sort of contest almost for these uh, job creation goals, when knowing full well because of the talent pools, uh, the local resources, uh, even just the the location and proximity to some of their their hiring needs, uh, that a lot of these states and cities that that pitched major major subsidy packages were never in the running. But it did force the ones that actually had a chance to up their game as well. Um, one thing I would say is it's 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 both you know a level of desperation as you noted, but also just being outmatched to a degree. Um, these are municipalities or states that might that have these economic agencies that don't necessarily have the savvy to take on a company like Tesla or Foxconn, which are coming in and promising a thousand plus, or in the case of Foxconn, 13,000 jobs and sort of transforming the state. And oh, wait, if you don't have to agree to this sort of deal, we're just going to go elsewhere. Uh, you don't want to miss this once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, I, I would just say that this is a bipartisan issue. One, one thing that felt uh, I, I had this really disorienting feeling to reporting both uh, on Tesla in uh, the state of New York and Foxconn in Wisconsin, because the Foxconn project was driven by a Republican governor, Scott Walker, whereas the Buffalo Tesla project was driven by a Democratic governor, um, uh, Andrew Cuomo. So I would go back and forth to these states, uh, often very uh, weeks after one another, and you'd have local lawmakers on the Republican side in New York saying, this deal is terrible. How can you you give this corporate subsidy, this corporate giveaway. And then inversely, you'd ha- hear the same thing from local Democratic politicians in Wisconsin about the Foxconn deal. Uh, so it really is a bipartisan or, I, I don't know, I suppose nonpartisan issue of, of sort of these companies taking advantage of these uh, subsidy packages to create deals that they don't have to live up to. I, I would say in this case, uh, you know, having been in touch with Empire State Development Corporation, uh, at last check, this is the economic agency of New York that oversees the deal. They did say Tesla had met their job obligations. But I think there's just a sense uh, uh, that they haven't really lived up to the sort of larger meaning behind this factory, whether it's, uh, you know, committing to local suppliers. I remember talking to sources that said that even for their vending machines, at a certain point they were shipping in, I want to say the, the the snacks from California, they were using a, a California vendor for their cardboard. I mean, these are just small examples, but they demonstrate that I, I think in terms of the spirit of the deal, uh, you know, you'd want to use a, a local vending machine uh, supplier for New York State. Tesla, for what it's worth, said that they have actually done that since then. But I think that's just a really good example of, don't you want to use Corning uh, if you're in New York rather than shipping in glass from overseas like they're doing now, according to my sources? Uh, Don't you want to use that local cardboard maker or uh, what have you uh, rather than shipping things from California just because you might save a dime or a a penny on a P&L? so I think that's the larger issue. The, these companies, so far as I've my reporting has yielded, are really trying to do the bare minimum to uh, to sort of bring this to life. Uh, and so it, we'll see in the years ahead. There are penalties associated with the New York State if they don't live up to their job potential. Uh, but you know, at least so far, uh, Tesla has gotten the benefit of the doubt in in, in many cases. Okay, so then what are you watching for as this story unfolds? What are, what is on your mind as you consider? next steps for Tesla? I think one thing that would easily prove the critics wrong is to just make the solar roof work. Um, You know, they've been promising it for a few years. Uh, I forget what, I mean, God, was it late 2016, 2017? When, When did they actually announce the solar roof versus when was the first time they've 
actually delivered it out in the wild. It, it, it was It's really interesting. This is one of those products which I've written about consistently, yet I've only really ever seen one in a lab. I've seen one in Fremont uh, on sort of a test roof that Elon used to come uh, look at uh, back in the Solar City uh, days, uh, sort of leading towards the merger. I've uh, seen one in Buffalo, uh, sort of, you know, placed on a sample roof out front of the Buffalo factory uh, just this past November. Uh, but, you know, it would be the equivalent of writing about Apple and never seeing the iPhone. I mean, you see AirPods, you see iPads on the subway every single day. Imagine if we were writing about Apple and this grand product that's going to change the industry, but we, we don't know any customers that have actually used it. We don't know. We've never seen our parents or friends have it on their, uh, uh, you know, in their pockets for the iPhone. So I, I just really want to start seeing this stuff more in the wild. We have seen, you know, I think Tesla has said that they, they have delivered, uh, I forget however many, but at, at most in the hundreds, I think. Um, and, and, you know, beyond the, the few customers that are actually tweeting about it, um, we haven't really seen it scale up, and they keep promising that they're going to ramp up. I think at the last shareholder call, they said that they were going to ramp up this year. That's at least what Sanjay Shah, the VP that was uh, as recently as November in charge of uh, the solar group, uh, had promised me. But uh, you know, if they can if they can ramp that up, then they can prove a lot of their their naysayers wrong. But until that happens, uh, you know, I, I just think we have to remain uh, stringent and skeptical. Austin Carr is a reporter at Bloomberg. He covered the Tesla story back in 2019 in great detail. I highly recommend going back and reading his article if you found this interesting. What did you think of the episode? Give us a rating, give us a review, tweet at us at at Interchange Show or send us an email at contact at postscriptaudio.com. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan. And this is The Interchange. <laughs>